You know, I was just thinking of that song, God Loves Us. How many of you have ever heard of the book, The Five Love Languages? Highly recommend it for those of you who have never gone through. They even give you an assessment to determine what your, your love language is. Because we all don't communicate love in the same way. And it was such a revelation to discover that. For example, some people really like to give and receive gifts. I mean, everybody does. But some people, that's like if you give them something, they feel loved. Other people, they appreciate gifts, but if you say something nice to them, they really feel loved. So let's say a gift giver is married to a nice speaker. So the nice speaker every morning wakes up and says, Wow, honey, you look great this morning. You know, I'm so happy I'm married to you. That makes her happy, but she really wants some flowers. So she's not feeling the love, even though he's, as a love speaker, he's pouring out his love the way he knows how. Sometimes with God, I wonder what his love language is. Because I know Jesus died for me, but when I'm suffering and I'm upset, I need another language at that moment. And when the world is falling apart and people are hurting and suffering, I'm just wondering at that point, what love language is God speaking? Because I'm not feeling it. And obviously, I know that's a problem with me, not with God. And a song like that helps me understand, you know, God does love us. But sometimes, you know, we speak a different language than God does. And so I ask myself, how does God communicate his love to us? And of course, the biggest way is he sent his son to die for our sins. And that's enough. If he never did anything else, that's too much right there. But I... I'm needy. You know, I, I want to feel a little more sometimes. But he gives a lot more. And one of the ways he communicates his love is he tells us in advance what he's going to do, which I think is way cool. I mean, he's God. He doesn't have to tell us anything. It's, like, it's not like the CEO of a Fortune 500 comes and tells the janitor the plan for the next three years. He doesn't even know the janitor. But here we've got God, CEO of Universe, Inc., coming to us, and he says, listen, I'm going to tell you my entire plan for the universe. Today, we're going to look at some of the key passages in that plan. If you wanted to know how it's all going to turn out, I would tell you exactly where to go in the Bible. If you want to know the end times, the first place you have to go is the book of Daniel. And I've taught on that recently, and I hit the main sections. So if you want an easy version, just go get those lessons. But I, of course, I encourage you to read the book of Daniel and try to figure it out for yourself. That's the foundation. You can't know it all without the book of Daniel. After that, I would send you to Jesus' sermon called the Olivet Discourse. Not the Sermon on the Mount, even though it was a sermon on a mount. Different sermon, different mount. He was on the Mount of Olives. And he was telling everybody what was going to happen in the end days. A couple of chapters tells the whole story. It's a good place to go. Then I'd send you to the book of Revelation. Much more detail, much more confusing. But you take Daniel, Olivet Discourse, and the book of Revelation, that's almost everything. But there's one other place people will send you. They'll send you to Ezekiel's chapter 37 through 39, which is where we happen to be this morning. So I'm going to do my best to take you through all three chapters this morning. I'll plug in some of the details from all that other stuff. But if you really want to know the end, you've got to read all that stuff together. But I think we're going to do pretty well with it. Now, Ezekiel is given a vision. And he sees himself in a valley full of human remains, bones. Can you imagine how grossed out you'd be? You're walking along, fat, dumb, and happy. 
and all of a sudden you step and you hear a crunch and you look down and you just broke somebody's face. And you go, ooh! And then you step on a femur. And then you look around and you're surrounded by bones. And then God speaks to you. Well, rather than me reading to you what God said, I'm going to ask Pastor Michael to turn down the lights. We've got a dramatic reading for you about Ezekiel and the Valley of the Dry Bones. The hand of the Lord was upon me. He brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the voice of the Lord. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, and say to it, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Can you imagine being a prophet and having visions like that? It's, it's bizarre. It's weird. And there's no way you can know what it means unless God tells you. And of course, God does, and I'm going to explain to you exactly what it means. But I was just, I try to picture myself there. Now, Ezekiel wasn't only a prophet. He was Jewish. Jewish people have a particular respect for death. Um, for example, in Israel, when there's a suicide bombing, and bodies get blown up all over. There's a group of volunteers that come immediately. They're there with the ambulances and the police. And their job, and their volunteers, is to pick up remains and gather as many pieces as they can to give them a proper burial. So when Ezekiel finds himself in a valley full of body parts, I can only imagine he wasn't appreciating the moment. He was probably grossed out. When I was a kid... I was taught, don't even step on a grave. You know, so when you go to a cemetery, I see people, they just walk. I, I'm uncomfortable doing that. I, I think you should, you know, do your best to get around and through. and, and not, it's, it's just disrespectful to step on the grave. So I don't know if Ezekiel felt that way back in the day or not. But I think this vision of his was just, it was stunning. So he probably had the immediate revulsion of the death that surrounded him. And then the relational amazement of the death turning into life. All right, so what's it mean? God tells Ezekiel that these bones represent the house of Israel, which is basically dead and has no hope. But Ezekiel, chin up. The days are coming where I will breathe life back into Israel and it will revive again as a nation. That's what it means. Listen, 
Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry, our hope is lost, and we ourselves are cut off. Our hope is lost. We have no hope. So this was a message of hope. God was telling Ezekiel in a very dramatic way, You do have hope. I'm your hope. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. By way of reminder, Ezekiel lived during the time when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Judah. Israel was already gone. Temples destroyed. People are dispersed. That's it. We're done as a nation. We have no hope. And he was saying, no, you, you do have a future. But I found it interesting. Not only do we see the Valley of Dry Bones, but then he says, I will open up your graves. That's a little different. I'll open up your graves and breathe life into you. And I'm wondering if it's like a double metaphor where the the valley of dry bones refers to the resurrection of Israel as a nation symbolically and opening up the grave refers to the literal resurrection that God promises throughout the scripture. I don't know. If it's literal, then obviously this event happens after the rapture because that's when the first big resurrection is and that helps us time it. And if it's uh, symbolic... Who knows? But a lot of people think that, well, you know, Israel ceased to be a nation for almost 2,000 years. We were scattered. We were dispersed after the temple was destroyed for almost 2,000 years. And in 1948, we came back. And a lot of people say, hey, that's the fulfillment of Ezekiel. Well, no, it's not. It might be the beginning of the fulfillment, but it's definitely not the fulfillment. But if it's the start of the fulfillment... Okay, we got the bones come together, Israel's a nation. And then it says, I will breathe life into them. And so the common interpretation is the Jewish people are back in the land, but not yet filled with the Holy Spirit, not yet believers in Jesus, which will be the next thing on the prophetic clock in this prophecy. Could be, don't know. I want to caution you to take passages of Scripture like this that are popular and think you have it all understood. Because, uh, you know, people write books and chapters and they say, this is how all the end's going to happen. Well, I think they're, they're, you know, guessing a lot. There's a lot of detail in there that they're not accounting for, and they just simplify it. When Israel was dispersed in the days of Ezekiel, they came back again. Was that the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment? Maybe. But when I told you a few minutes ago, it's not the fulfillment, even 48, it might be the beginning of the fulfillment, I had a reason for that. Because when it's actually fulfilled, when it's done fulfilled, it's when Jesus is on the throne. And that obviously hasn't happened yet. Listen, continuing on through Ezekiel. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. This hasn't happened yet. My sanctuary will be with them forever. They will follow my laws. This is still in our future. So if 1948 was the bones coming together, we're still waiting for the breath to come in. Maybe it wasn't even 1948. Maybe it's still the future that this prophecy is talking about. 
There's a little confusion for some people here, though. It says, my servant David will be king over them. And throughout all the rest of the scriptures, it says the Messiah is going to be the son of David, Jesus. So here it says David's going to be king. And this has caused some people to think David's going to be resurrected and become king of Israel again. Well, biblically speaking, that's not a bizarre thought. There will be a resurrection, and David will be resurrected. But I tend to think, you know, Jesus is a descendant of David. He's an heir of the Davidic throne. So when it says, my servant David, I think it's referring to the dynasty, not David himself. But either way, both can work, but it fits easier and makes more sense if we think of it as the descendant, who, who of course is Jesus. Well, so he has this vision, and then God tells him to do something. He says, I want you to take two sticks. On one of them, I want you to write Israel. And on the other stick, I want you to write Judah. Okay, you got two sticks. And then I want you to tie them together. Jose, would you help me tie these together? See, Israel and Judah, you hold those right there. And I'll take out some Ezekiel tape here. Because <laughs> you know he used duct tape to do this. Ooh. All right, let's make us some. Two sticks become one. Yeah, that's not coming apart anytime soon. Let's do the top now. All right, so Ezekiel, God says, I want you to take those two sticks and tie them together in front of the people, just like I'm doing in front of you right now. Thank you. Appreciate your help. See, prophets sometimes did things but why? They were like, okay, that was cool, Ezekiel. What's it mean? Why did you do that? It's an object lesson. Join them together into one stick so that they'll become one in your hand. And when your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Aha, here's the meaning. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone and I will gather them from all around and bring them back to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms again. When Solomon became king, Israel was one nation. But right after him, it divided into two nations. The nation in the north was called Israel, and the nation in the south was called Judah. Two economies, two kings, two religions. The one in the north went apostate immediately. Even two different accents of the Hebrew language. They were two separate nations, just like we're totally separate from Canada. So God told them, that's going to change. When I bring you back together, you will be one nation. No coming apart ever again. So Israel was dispersed. They went away. Judah was dispersed. And they came back to the land, one nation. Because back in those days, that was it. No more two nations. Well, then we were dispersed for 2,000 years. We're back in the land again. And I'll tell you what. When you walk through the land of Israel, there's nobody there saying, hey, I'm from Judah, and I'm from Benjamin, and I'm from Naphtali. Nobody knows what tribe they're from. Israel is one nation again. So if this is the dry bones, then the two nations have become one. And we're watching the fulfillment right before our very eyes, which is what I tend to think. 
But I had an interesting experience about that passage of Scripture some years ago. I was talking to a, an acquaintance of mine, friend, many years ago when I was a young believer. And he was Mormon. And I, I, was pro- I don't remember all the details, probably sharing my testimony with him, how as a Jewish person I came to believe in Jesus, and that meant believing in the New Testament. But the reason I believed in the New Testament was because of the Old Testament, which specifically said, the days are coming when I will establish a New Testament covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the Old Testament gave me the authority to believe in the New Testament. But he believes in the Book of Mormon. I said, that's not part of the Bible. I mean, there's a reason to take the Old and New Testaments. Everybody believes that's the Bible. Only you guys believe that's the Bible. He says, no, it's also prophesied in the Bible that the Book of Mormon would come. I said, really? Where? He took me to Ezekiel, and he read that passage of Scripture. He said, the one stick is the Bible, and the other stick is the Book of Mormon, and the two are one. And I read it. And I said, dude, just read further. It tells you what it means. You can't just make up your own interpretation for the sticks. It says right there, Israel's coming back, Judah's coming back, the two are coming together, one king, never again two nations. It's got nothing to do with the Book of Mormon. Yes, it does. All right, whatever. It's not just Mormons, though they do it a lot, take passages of Scripture and give a new and unique interpretation to them. We don't have the authority or the right to make up a passage of Scripture what it means. You've got to let the Bible tell you what it means and then go with it, whether it agrees with your theology or your background or not. So that, I just thought, you know, if I ran into that, probably you're going to run into that. So I wanted to share with you my experience so you can know better. So that was Ezekiel chapter 37. Now we move into 38 and 39. Famous battle of Gog and Magog. Chapter 37 is the good news. You're going to have your nation back and everything's going to be good. Chapters 38 and 39 are like, yeah, but before everything's good, you're going to go through some really hard times. Chapter 37 is the good news. Chapters 38 through 39, the not so good news. Son of man, set your face against Gog of the land of Magog the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal prophesy against him. All right, so to understand Ezekiel 38 and 39, which talks about Gog and Magog, we got to know who Gog is, where Magog is, Meshach and Tubal. So three questions. Who or what is Gog? Where is the land of Magog? And who or what is Meshach and Tubal? Who is Gog? Don't know. Where's the land of Magog? Don't know. Meshach and Tubal? Don't know. And it's funny, everybody say, you've got to understand Ezekiel 38 and 39 to understand end times prophecy. And I'm like, yeah, good luck. Because you don't even know who he's talking to or about, let alone when it happens. And yet, they'll put it down in their book. There is evidence, strong evidence, that all this happens in the tribulation tied to the, valley, uh, the battle of Armageddon and all that before Jesus' second coming. Strong evidence. There's also strong evidence that it happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ, the battle of Gog and Magog. So where do I stand? I stand firmly in the camp of, I don't know. I like that camp because I don't have to say I know something that nobody really knows and then take sides and fight over something nobody knows about. I can just say, yeah, there's evidence for both. I lean towards 
Battle of Armageddon scenario, that this all happens before Christ returns. But I don't stand there with a flag. So, should you read Ezekiel 38 and 39 and try to understand it? Absolutely. Do the best you can to try to fit it into your end time scenario. But, you know, don't get too uptight when you realize that it's not as obvious as the people who write the books say it is. And just, you know, keep that in mind. I do know this. According to the scripture, which we'll read a little later, or you can read at home when you read Ezekiel, it says that Gog leads the land of Magog to the far north. Well, I've got a map for you. Um, you can Google it at home. You can almost draw a straight line from Jerusalem to Moscow. And that's like the farthest north major city on the map. So, Meshach sounds like Moscow. Different language. Meshach could be Moscow. But the thing is, it says the far north. It doesn't say the farthest biggest city in the north in the year 2013. It doesn't say that. It just says the far north. You go down a little south from Israel and you're in Turkey. And there's some towns there that kind of sound like Meshach too. Um, I mean, yeah, Meshach, Tubal. Tubal, they say, could be, well, Tobolsk, which is another Russian town. Could be, but it sounds like a town in Turkey, too. And they're both north. In fact, they're both far north. So, we know Gog refers to a future leader of the land of Magog, but we don't know where Magog is. Strong evidence for Turkey, strong evidence for Russia. We'll see. Neither of them are very friendly towards Israel. Neither of them have ever been friendly towards Israel. So both of them are very likely scenarios. We shall see. So here's what we know for certain. I'll read it in a moment. It comes from Ezekiel. That there's going to come a time when Israel's going to live in safety. And then this guy, Gog, is going to assemble a vast confederacy from the north beginning. But other nations will join him and they will attack Israel. So here's what I know about the future. A huge confederacy of nations led from the north is going to attack Israel during a time of peace. That's what the Bible says. No interpretation required. Which is interesting, just the fact that it says it's going to happen to Israel during a time of peace. Well, that's some prophecy right there. I haven't seen that yet. Has Israel ever had a time of peace? So this is going to be a noteworthy, time of, timely event. Israel having peace, really? And here's what I find extremely interesting. The whole end time scenario, when we went back and were studying Daniel, gets launched by a peace treaty with Israel and the Antichrist in Daniel. So it's not a huge leap to think that the peace Israel is experiencing in Ezekiel 38 is the peace treaty that the Antichrist makes back in Daniel, I think it was 9. So again, more evidence to before, when, before the time Christ comes. Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, this is what the sovereign Lord says, in that day, when my people Israel are living in safety, will you not take notice of it? You will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you. You and many nations with you. Let me tell you how it works in Israel today. There's a small standing army. We have a huge standing army. In Israel, when there's a battle, I say, oh, we're going to have to go into Gaza again. People get a phone call. Everybody's got cell phones. So wherever you are, you might be, you know, eating at a restaurant. Your cell phone goes off, and it's your post, your commander. Report for duty immediately. 
or within two hours or whatever the situation calls for. So we'll say, report to post immediately. That's all you get. And by the way, you're sitting in the restaurant. Everybody else's phone is going off too because they're the army. They have a small standing army, but everybody else's reserves. So in your restaurant, immediately half the restaurant may empty out and start heading home to pick up their bag, kiss their wife and kids goodbye, head off to the army. There might be a 70-year-old sitting next to you whose phone goes off, believe it or not. He might be a colonel. He might run supply. It's an amazing thing. The whole nation immediately gets stunned. But you don't know what's going on. You know, nobody knows yet. You, haven't, you turn on CNN, but you don't see. So you get to the base, and they say, what's going on? They say, well, we're under attack. Well, yeah, well, by who? Everybody! What do you mean, everybody? What nation is attacking us? Everybody, all of them! You've got to be kidding. You're kidding, right? No. We're, we're surrounded. There's millions and tens of millions. The guys cry, they scream, they cry out to God. This is impossible. What can we do? We're hopeless. Then maybe a religious guy stands up. Maybe a Jewish believer and says, Whoa, ho, ho. don't ever say we're hopeless. Do you remember what God said to Ezekiel about the valley of dry bones? Where there's God, there's hope. This might be that time. Be brave. Whether we die or not, that's in God's hands. But we'll fight. And who knows, maybe we'll win. And maybe he'll rally the troops. And they'll go out to their posts. And they will see mile after mile of troops. Now, if this does happen in the midst of that seven-year tribulation period, which I think is most likely. Much of the world has already been decimated by war. That's why the peace treaty came along. God had started to judge the world. A huge portion of the world's population has been devastated. The infrastructure has been devastated. Because Ezekiel is going to start talking about horses and war clubs and bows and arrows. And people say, ah, obviously he's not talking about the future because he's talking about ancient weapons. Well, a couple of options. One, that's all he knew was ancient weapons. So if he talked about war, it makes sense. That's, a, that's what he'd reference. He couldn't very well say, yeah, they all got RPGs and grenades. He didn't know what those things were. So that's a possibility. The other possibility is we've been thrown back to the Stone Age anyway. You know, there's a show on TV. I don't know what it's called. Preppers. You know what I'm talking about? These people are getting ready for the end of the world and they stock up years of food and water and they're just ready because they know the end of the world's coming. Well, they are right. The end of the world is coming. We just don't know when. Could be in 50 years, could be in 30 years, could be in five years. We don't know, but it's coming. Total chaos and anarchy. It's coming, but who knows when? And who knows if a basement full of Cheerios is going to help anyway because your house might be bombed out. Yeah, you might be recruited into the army and fighting in Canada. Getting ready is not a bad idea. Just don't take it so far, in my opinion, because you just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So anyway, you will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people Israel like a cloud that covers the land. So here's what we know. At a time that Israel is living in relative peace, not at war, a huge confederacy is going to come down to attack Israel. Obviously, they'll think they have no hope. But then God steps in and he decimates that army. Listen, this is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, 
My hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. In my zeal and fiery wrath, I declare that at that time there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. Okay, so you got your phone call, you leave the cafe, you go home, you grab your bag, you report to base, you're out on the field. You're behind, you and your five guys got your two million in front of you that you're supposed to fight. And you're looking at each other, you're looking at heaven, and you're saying, bring it on! If I go, I'm going fighting! And then all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. Now, I don't mean a tremor. I lived in California. I went through plenty of tremors and earthquakes. But that was kids' play. My house never fell down. Some people's houses did, and that wasn't kids' play for them. But this earthquake is going to be so violent that it's going to move mountains. Every wall is going to fall down. This is going to be an earthquake where these big bad Gog soldiers are going to fall on the ground and cry to their mamas. They are going to be petrified. So the war immediately stops because nobody can even stand because the earthquake is so violent. But that's not all God's going to do. All the people on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be overturned. The cliffs will crumble and every wall will fall to the ground. Then God's going to rain down fire and brimstone on that army. Listen. I will execute upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hailstones and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. This battle is in God's hands. Otherwise, Israel would have been wiped off the face of the earth. No way around it, period. But see, God made a promise to Israel, and he keeps his promise. He said they would never be annihilated. Scattered, sure. Harassed, yes. But fully annihilated, never. He promised. To keep his promise on this day, he's got to do some serious work. And he does. He shakes the planet, knocks everybody down, and burns them up with fire and brimstone. War's over. I can't wait to see that, man. I hope I have a seat up in heaven so I can look down. That's going to be a cool day. How many people were there? I don't know. I know this. Now that everything's destroyed and decimated, the infrastructure's gone, they need fuel. And so they gather up the weapons of war, the bows, the arrows, the sticks, the clubs. People, man, we're vicious. After the horrible mass shootings that have happened over the last couple of years, I've done a, a bit of reading because um, I'm a firearms enthusiast. I like firearms. And I've never thought firearms killed people. I've always thought people killed people. I figured take away their guns, they'll use sticks and clubs. Knives. On the same day as Sandy Hook, a Chinese man went into a school and stabbed 20 kids with a knife. It's horrible. People just like to kill people. Of course, you and I don't, but it's mankind's curse. We're violent. We're vicious. And so I saw that according to, in some of the articles I read, according to the FBI, every year for the last several years, including these mass shootings, more people have been killed with sticks and clubs in this country than with rifles. So, yeah, we want to do something about these shootings, but obviously some 
knee-jerk reaction isn't going to solve the problem. If more people are dying by sticks and clubs, and twice as many people are being killed by fists and feet in this country than by rifles. So what are we going to do? Outlaw fists and feet? See, the problem isn't the rifles, the problem isn't the stick, and the problem isn't the feet. The problem is the heart. We are separated from God and broken with sin. So these people are attacking Israel with sticks and clubs, anything to kill me some Jews, evil, vicious people. God puts an end to them. Well, the Israelis, all their houses are broken, the infrastructure's ruined. There's junk all over the countryside. So they start using all this stuff for fuel, burn fires, to cook, to keep warm. It takes seven years to burn it all up. Seven years. Can you imagine an entire nation burning stuff up and it taking seven years to consume it? To give you an idea of how vast this army must be. And then, you know, you got corpses all over the place. You can't just leave them there. The Bible talks about a huge feast for the birds of the sky who come and feast on the bodies. But, ew, that's gross. You want to just walk around the city and watch corpses everywhere? Plus, then disease comes. So you got to bury the bodies. It's going to take them seven months to do the burying. How many bodies, how many bodies does it take seven months to bury? Oh, and it's not just the volunteers. The entire nation is going to spend the next seven months after this battle burying bodies. Seven months, 365, you know, well, how many, seven times 30, whatever that is. I read, for seven months the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them. And the day I am glorified will be memorable, uh, will be a memorial day for them, declares the sovereign Lord. It will be a memorial day for them. A holiday. So uh, probably a year later, they're going to have God Day. Hey, you guys remember what happened last year? Oh, yeah, I was sitting down at McDonald's, and I got the phone call, and I got out. I nearly wet my pants when I saw all those people out there. Then the ground shook, fire came down, and next thing you know it, it was over. Remember that? Yeah, let's have a barbecue. God Day. Just like we do, 4th of July. Yeah, the red coats, they came in. We busted a few caps, and now we eat hot dogs. Fact, almost all the Jewish holidays can be summed up like this. They try to kill us. We won. Let's eat. <laughs> so this will be the next one on the holiday list, Gog Day. But, you know, maybe the people will be a little more spiritual, and they won't call it Gog Day. Maybe they'll call it God Day, the day God stepped in and reintroduced himself to the nation of Israel. I don't know. So here's my summary of Ezekiel's 38 and 39. When Israel is not at war, they're living at a time of peace, a huge confederacy led from the north is going to come down and attack them. But God will step in and supernaturally decimate the army. It will take seven years to burn up all the weapons of war and seven months to bury all the dead. And then right after this, in Ezekiel 37, 38, 39, it talks about the Messiah ruling and reigning. So I, I'm thinking this happens right before Jesus sets up his throne for the millennial kingdom. But like I said before, I don't know. But he does say this. He makes this promise. After this battle, he says, 
My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. So this is like, you know, like I said, God reintroducing himself to Israel and rebirthing that relationship. The day is going to come, people, when God will literally dwell on this earth with people. And in order to be there dwelling with God then, God has to dwell in your heart now. Now, yeah, we, we may not see these days. We may be dead and buried, but there's going to be a resurrection. Or these days may start tomorrow. And we may see these days. It depends on your theology. It doesn't matter what your theology is. Whatever God says is going to happen is going to happen. But you've got to be ready for God. This is love. Now, I'm reading from the Apostle John. John was closest to Jesus' heart. They were buddies. Jesus really had a special place in his heart for John. This is what John wrote. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, tell me, do you acknowledge that Jesus is the son of God? Let's see some hands. God lives in you and you in him. We're one, kind of like those sticks, never to be separated again. There will come a time when that relationship will not be distant like it is right now. But it's going to be face-to-face, the Bible says. And I'm so longing for that day. But you've got to be ready for that day now. You can't wait for that day to come. You have to be ready now. There's a parable Jesus told. He said there was this wedding. And there were these ten bridesmaids that for whatever reason didn't keep enough oil in their lamps. And the wedding happened after their oil ran out. And they couldn't come to the wedding because they ran out of oil in their lamps. Jesus said they couldn't go into the wedding because they weren't ready. We're supposed to be ready now, not wait till then. Bring Jesus into your heart now. Because, you know, there is no tomorrow. How many people thought they had a tomorrow and died? We are not promised a tomorrow. Tomorrow doesn't exist. It's only on paper. That's why the scripture says, Behold, today is the day of salvation. You may get a tomorrow, you may not. You don't know. My wife and I, in a few weeks, are going to meet up with some family in Las Vegas. And we decided we're going to do something we have never done. We're going to go see one of those shows. And those shows are so expensive. But finally, we're going to go see one. She says, I want to see Cirque du Soleil's Ka. I said, sweetie, if that's the one you want to see, that's the one we'll see. And if we can pull off some magic shows, I'm in on that too. But we're definitely going to see Ka. See, I went online, got the tickets. No, I could just show up at the door and say, we're here to see Ka. And they could laugh in my face and say they sold out a month ago. I could take my chances. But it's too important. You know, it's not every day you go on vacation and meet up with family. So you make plans ahead of time. So you have your reservation. Well, what's more important than heaven? What's more important than a relationship with God? Nothing. So why would we want to put off those plans? If I'm going to make plans for Cirque du Soleil now, 
you certainly better believe I'm ready for heaven. I invited Jesus into my heart and got my ticket to heaven back in the 80s. I would have done it sooner, but I was lost, and then I got found. I was blind, but then I saw. Well, I don't know where you are on that journey right now, but if God is speaking to your heart and you've not yet gotten your ticket to heaven, I urge you to turn from your sins and invite Jesus into your life. Promise to follow him. Make your reservation so that he might dwell in you and you might dwell in him and that you might see him face to face. In a few minutes, we'll end services. The prayer room will be open. I'd encourage you to go over there, get some prayer support. You've got a baptism coming up. So if you're new to the faith and have not yet been baptized, we would love to baptize you. Just get in touch with the office and we'll take care of those arrangements. Let me ask the worship team to come on up. And uh, while they're coming up, why don't you join me in prayer? Lord God, may you dwell in us and us in you. We look forward to the day when you make your presence here amongst mankind. Until then, Lord, help us to speak your love language. Help us to understand that you sharing these things with us is your way of showing your love for us. You sending Jesus is your way of showing love for us. Saving us is your way of showing love for us. But removing us from trials and tribulations is not your way of showing love for us. And help me to remember that. We thank you for loving us and help us to love you in return and one another. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.